What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey, everyone. This is Aisha. And if you follow us on our social media accounts at Slate Represent across, you know, Twitter, Facebook, now on Instagram, you probably know that we have a live show coming up in August. That is Represent Live at the Speak Up Rise Up Festival. And the show will be held August 16th at 7.30 p.m. at the Connolly Theater in New York City. And tickets are now on sale at slate.com slash live. Get your tickets now and we cannot wait to see you on August 16th. The following podcast contains explicit language. Come on. Pick up Jolene. Pick up. Maybe you're peeing. That's okay. I have to pee, but I'm going to hold it. (laughs) Answer the damn phone, Jolene. Hello? Wait, who is this? Please be a man named Jolene. No, this is Tad. Hey there, and welcome back to Represent. I'm your host, Aisha Harris. And if you've been listening to us for some time now, you'll probably recall that back in January, we had the incredible, legendary Rita Moreno on to discuss the Netflix series One Day at a Time. Well, recently, I was lucky enough to have a great conversation with the showrunner of One Day at a Time, Gloria Calderon-Kellett, and she shared her own experiences working on the show. We'll get to that discussion a little later, but first, we have a new edition of Pre-Woke Watching. A Slate colleague from across the pond, producer Renee Richardson, was in New York City on holiday, and she popped in to discuss some problematic aspects of a series with many problematic aspects, Sex and the City. Welcome, Renee, all the way from London. Hello. You're on, I'm sorry, I'm going to, you're on holiday. <laughs> I am on holiday. <laughs> I don't know why, but every time I say holiday, I feel like I have to say it with an accent because Americans don't say they're on holiday. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Welcome to the show. Good to and be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So, I mean, there's many, many things that we can say about Sex in the City, but like, what is uh, what is the thing? First of all, let me ask you, what was like your first encounter with Sex and the City? Because so you're, you are I, from London. Yeah, I'm from London. So I think I started watching it in season three or four. Mm-hmm. So I would have been maybe 19. So during the original So airing. when it was originally on Channel 4 in London um, weekly mm-hmm. and I'd watch it and it was like really exciting and New York looked amazing and I was like, oh my God, these women, I need to be them. <laughs> um, and I loved it. Watched it every week. It was really sad when it ended. Um, I was like, Wait, they've never had a show like this. It's so empowering to women. I, they just need more. Why is it not a show like, why are they not making another one? Yeah. So then, <laughs> <laughs> then I, I hadn't um, rewatched it because obviously it's HBO. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't buy the box set 
Oh, I, DVDs with I have the shoe. The box set. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not with the shoe. There was a shoe? There was a shoe box and you, um, the DVD, and it was like a shoe box and you had all of the DVDs in it. What? Yeah. My box set is not that fancy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but I never bought that because I then didn't have a DVD player, so it didn't make sense. Yeah. yeah. And it's not on any of the Netflix or anything because it's HBO. Right. So I just hadn't watched it since. It, literally, I watched the film. Um, and then, were terrible. Yeah, exactly. Ugh. And that was it. Mm-hmm. And then I was listening to a podcast and they mentioned it. And I was like, I need to, I'm going to watch it. So I bought it on iTunes. I bought the whole thing. Because mm-hmm. I was like, I love Sex and the City so much. I don't mind owning the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to take the dive. Um, so I've started watching it. I've been binging. Um, I started two weeks ago. Oh, wait. So this is like new. It's like you're just fresh. rewatching it. It's fresh. I am watching it now. I've had to have a break on season four. Mm-hmm. Because I, it's infuriated me. <laughs> okay, so what has changed your mind from between when you were 19 and now? So I used to think that I was like a... Not that I was like sleeping around. Not that, that you can. I don't care. Yeah. But I just thought she was so um, progressive and just so confident. And like she was the one. She was the fun one. And I was like, I'm such a Samantha. Because <laughs> <laughs> no one wanted to be Charlotte, let's face it. No, no one wants to be Charlotte. <laughs> and Miranda just seemed moany. And, and I, I think I, I think I'm most identified with Miranda. If I'm no, be some honest. people wanted to be Miranda, but I'm yeah. just like I was like she's a bit moany. Carrie was just a dick. Carrie's the worst. So Samantha was my girl. I was like, yes, Samantha. Watching it back now, I'm like these women. Um, Samantha um, sleeps with people to kind of boost her confidence when she's feeling like like she sleeps with men she doesn't even find attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something that I that I was like, why is she? I was like, Samantha's not like that's not Samantha. She doesn't do this. She loves sex. She's like, it's fun. It's great. It's. I'm trying to remember it. Where so I'm at the point where she. Um, so just after she thought she was going through the menopause, and there was a man in her building who kept hitting on her, and she's like, I would never like. He's made me feel really disgusting. It's like as if like why would someone like that hit on me when she thought she was going through the menopause? She just like slept with him because she was like, well, I might as well. Oh. <sighs> Oh, Jesus. Oh, I... Baby, either you're a virgin or Flo just came to town. My period? There's fucking blood everywhere. <gasps> oh, my God. That is so... These are fucking Pertezzi sheets. Two grand a set. Then her period came and she was like, yes! <laughs> but um, this happened a few times where she's um, actually, on a low point, she's just slept with someone to... Um, and she's not even enjoying it. Yeah. And I just think they don't really address the deeper meaning of that right. in the show. And Charlotte, for me, because uh, the weird thing is now that I'm their age. I'm like 33, so I'm there, like, living their life, that they imaginary life. And um, Charlotte, when she married Trey, um, she had doubts... And she um, knew she didn't want to marry him, but she was on the even on the aisle. She was like, "But I'm 34. I have to get married." And he was like, "If I ever said that to someone, I really hope my friend would just shake me mm-hmm. and say, what are you doing? Don't do this. You can you can do better.' I think to me, a strong woman is if like I don't swear, but if like some crap hits the fan, um, you can survive. Yeah, you know, like if you were to lose your job, you can make something work." And those women couldn't. Well, I think, uh, I was going to say Carrie Rocha. I think Sarah Jessica Parker just recently did an interview where she said that the show wasn't about, like, the show wasn't trying to be about female empowerment. Yeah. It was about, like, love and romance, which 
Which it makes again, sense. It does. But at the time, she's looking back now and she's saying that now because she knows that she's got a very problematic show. <laughs> <laughs> Call if, it out. Yeah, and if I was to do an interview today... If I was in that show, I would say, of course, it's about, you know, finding love and dating in yeah. New York and our sixth, our, fourth, our fifth character, you know, New York City. It's a postcard of love to that. No. So really, it just sounds like they, the show never, in your mind, never did a good job of, like, addressing their really, like, terrible self-esteem issues. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But exactly. they cloaked it in, like... Fun, fun, and, like, and yeah, and empowerment. Yeah, and then obviously you've got the homophobic stuff and the racist stuff. Yeah, there's, there's and so there's, much. There's just so much. There's so many problems with it. You're in the middle of season four. Are you going to continue? Um, I don't think I can. Okay. Now, so you've just I give yeah, it up. I, I wish I could return it. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I don't know how you do that on iTunes. Yeah, I don't know. I think, can I just give back the last I mean, two if you, seasons? If it's only been the last, <laughs> if you only got it like in the last month, I'm sure yeah. you can return it. But like, it's just, it's one of those things. It's like, do I need to watch these, you know, fake, privileged white women moaning about their lives that seem back then great as a person, as a black woman in 2017? No. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I think that's the perfect note to end on. <laughs> Thank you. That was fun. Now on to my chat with Gloria Calderon Kellett, the showrunner for One Day at a Time. So Netflix's reboot of Norman Lear's classic sitcom has been updated to center around a Cuban-American military vet played by Justina Machado and her family. And if you haven't checked it out yet, I highly suggest it as a great summer binge watch. I was a huge fan of the show. Gloria and I got into it a lot during our conversation, discussing how the show pulled from her personal life, as well as the controversy around Latina representation in another series she worked on, Devious Maids. Check it out. It's great to have you on, Gloria. Welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. So first, I would love to know a little bit about how you how the show came to be and how you got involved well i was so i had been do i've been doing this for about 11 years uh different tv shows and i started in comedy and then i sort of wanted to try everything else so i've been really fortunate that i've gotten to do uh, multicam with rules of engagement i got to do multicam hybrid with how i met your mother mm -hmm. i got to do one hour soap with uh with mark cherry on devious maids and single camera mixology for abc and i got to do a procedural eye zombie for the cw so i had sort of had my hand in everything and decided to take a step back and say all right now i want to kind of make a show i want to be the creator of a show I have now done everything. What was my favorite? And really, multi-camera sitcom, uh, the old school stuff, is like shooting a live play. You have 200 people in an audience. You write it. The actors learn it in one week. You put it up. It just feels like, uh, you know, what made me fall in love with this in the first place, the the putting up of a play when, when like, we were kids, you know? And you, your background is you started off your career writing plays, correct? Yes, I started as an actor and, and writing plays. So mm -hmm. the theater was just the closest to my heart. It's it's what really made me fall in love with, with writing and acting. So mm -hmm. that's sort of where I, st I was in a headspace of that, like, okay, I want to now create something. And I also have been very protective of my family. And it was the first time I had opened myself up to perhaps writing about my personal experiences. And then 
synchronistically, I get this phone call from my agents. Uh, Norman Lear wants to sit down with you. And, I'm like, you know, <laughs> you get that call and you're like, what? Yep. Uh, and so, of course, I said yes. And he sat down with me and told me he was considering doing a reboot of One Day at a Time and really was like, you know, I just I really just want to take it as a starting point and have somebody come in and. And make it their own, make it its own thing. But if there's something that inspires you about that. And then we really had about an hour, hour and a half long conversation. He's incredibly disarming, Norman, and so curious. So once you sort of get over, oh, my gosh, I'm sitting with Norman Lear, <laughs> then then you get really comfortable and you really are like, oh, I'm talking to somebody who's interested and asking wonderful questions. And he asked me what it was like growing up Latina in Los Angeles and about my parents and their experience as I'm a the child, the child of immigrants. My parents came from Cuba in 1962, not speaking any English, and it's a very American story. And so, the more I talked, the more he was like, "Yes, that's let's do this. This is good. This is good." Mm-hmm. I want to get into your family a little bit later, but first, I would love to. I mean, one of the things about One Day at a Time and about some shows that are on out now is that, like, the multi-camera sitcom is arguably it's been argued that it's dead like this is a format that does not um bring out the best in what we expect anymore we've gotten so used to like the office um sort of uh the single camera the and it's Mm -hmm. supposedly grounded in a more quote-unquote realistic experience um and i have to admit like it was difficult for me at first to get into the to get used to that format while watching um one day at a time because I'm so used na- used to now just seeing, you know, what we the office type shows, the the 30 rocks, these the very straightforward um or actually less straightforward like you have all these editing tricks and all that stuff. Um right. Was the was the show it sounds like it was always supposed to be a single camera or sorry, a multi-camera format. Yes, yes, it was always going to be multi-cam and mm-hmm. and you know, Mike, my partner worked on Everybody Loves Raymond, which was a more grounded family sitcom. And How I Met Your Mother had many quick cuts, but we we tried to do some, you know, good, grounded, fun storytelling from time to time. Mm-hmm. So it's it's and then obviously the play format, if you look at Norman's work from the 70s, it is very deep. It goes very it, it's incredibly grounded. And I th- I'm not sure what has made us move away from it. I mean, what's funny about the the multicam is that. It is still the number one com- the number one comedy in America is Big Bang Theory. Right. So people still do watch it. It's just I think they're much more used to it just being joke 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 joke, mm-hmm. which is a difficult thing to do. What the writers of Big Bang are able to do in a, such a short amount of, amount of time is is give us a lot of joke and and some fun character stuff. But you have twenty minutes, twenty one minutes with which to do that. And Norman had much more time in the seventies with his show; it was much less advertising. Mm-hmm. So we felt that the Netflix, what really Netflix gave us, aside from incredible creative uh, support, was time to maybe dig in a little bit more to tell those Norman Lear type stories. Not to say that I wouldn't want to give it a shot in a in a twenty minute window because I think that would be an, a great challenge. Mm-hmm. But certainly our episodes being 26, 28 minutes long allows us to sit in these moments and have these conversations in a in a in what we're trying to make a an organic uh, way. Yeah, I mean that's that's the one thing I did notice and and by like the second episode I was like totally all in. But like 
it, it, it is sort of that hurdle. But with the sort of 27 minute format that does, like you said, allow you to have a lot more time to have these moments that last longer. Um, and I, I especially think of, you know, the 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 final scene. And I think it's the final scene in the final episode, if I remember correctly, at the at her Kinsey at her Kinsey um, and having them all come together and sort of comfort her one by one that like final moment like you can't on a 20 minute show you would only have like 30 seconds to do that but i th- i think the right. the moment is much like it you feel it more in that dynamic than you would oh. yeah on a 20 minute good show. <laughs> that's nice to hear thanks yeah, yeah. no it, it's just and i think i you you kind of ask sort of why we've moved away from the multi camera i think part of it to me, from what I see, is that we're in this era now that critics like to call peak TV, and yes. the peak TV comes with this like everything is supposed to be uh, to expound on the meaning of life and and right. have this raw this and edgy exactly yes. exactly and so the theatrical nature of it, the theater is is you know people who go to the theater I think they go to see that but. For people who are used to just like going to the movies, going to see TV, like theater is like this other, like this entity, this other. And I think that's partially why the multi-cam sitcom like has kind of fallen by the wayside. Um, but it, it, I, yes, I, <laughs> I didn't say all of that to to disparage the multi-cam format. No, uh, no, I, I, I get it. I get yeah. it. I, and look, it, it is it is um, it is more presentational. Right. It right. is more theatrical. And there is a I really admire actors who can do it because it's a different type of acting as well. It's it's actually interesting to me that that uh, they pair comedies uh, together, multi and single, because I feel like they're they should be their own categories. They're such different acting styles. Yeah. And what what a good multicam actor is able to do is ground something, but make it a little bit larger than life. And then go to very real places as well. And that transition back and forth between sort of a heightened reality and a raw reality is difficult to do. And we're so fortunate to have actors like Justina Machado and Todd Grinnell and Rita Moreno mm-hmm. who can go back and forth quite beautifully. And, and we're really fortunate. They elevate the material for sure. For sure. And I mean, because you are working in, in this, even the, even though you're working in this multicam format, there are so many, like the Norman Lear shows of in in the heyday. You know, there are so many topics that are being discussed that you would also find on any number of, you know, more highly uh, praised um, single camera sitcoms. Like the, you know, you have immigration. You're discussing uh, generational differences, religion, sexuality. Among all of those topical issues, which one in the writers' room was like the most? hotly debated or that you struggled to bring to the screen uh, the most church. in the writer's room? <laughs> Definitely the church one. <laughs> ah, interesting. I would not, yeah. I, I guess, yeah, I wouldn't have thought that. But yeah, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, we, so it's, we are a pretty liberal room, right? It's a, it's liberal uh, Hollywood. <laughs> right. Uh, and we have, uh, we, there, th- you know, homosexuality is not a thing in a writer's room. Nobody cares. Everyone's <laughs> supportive of, of, of gay rights. And, right. and so that's not a topic where we're like, is that controversial? We all think we're on the right side of that issue and that we're trying to help people. Uh, we're trying to bridge the gap for anyone that's not there yet. Mm-hmm. So things like that, Elena coming out or her being gay, none of that was a topic of, uh, of a lot of, 
fighting is the wrong word. Discussion would be the right word. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we were doing the the gay storyline, it was more how do we get this right? How do we uh, honor the the gay men and women out there that are struggling to come out? How do we try to help the parents bridge the gap? But when it came to religion, everyone has different thoughts. We have, you know, Catholics and and Christians and Jewish. Uh, writers and agnostic, you know, it's it's every it's a little mix of everything. There's people that think it's nonsense, and there's people that believe in it. Mm-hmm. And we all love and respect one another. So, when talking about, and this is where I really respect our writers. Some of them uh, have their personal beliefs, but then it's what are the beliefs of these characters that we've set up, mm. and then what is uh, what is the best way to translate the things that they feel without making fun of them. You know, so I grew up Catholic. I identify Catholic because that's a lot of I, I feel like I'm culturally Catholic, mm-hmm. even though I don't believe uh, a lot of a lot of the doctrine. Uh, it's how I grew up. It's a, the the love thy neighbor thing is I'm very into. Mm-hmm. But there's, you know, a lot of the other stuff I'm not into. Right. So I'm able to have a conversation back and forth. What is annoying to me, though, loving many of my family members that are fully on board and Catholic is that when I see writers write Catholics on television, they're doing so with a judgment. And mm. you can feel the making fun of as you're watching it, and then it doesn't feel as grounded in reality to the people that I know and love and respect that are religious. Mm-hmm. So in in writing Lydia, in writing that character who's very based on my mother, you know, this is somebody I love and respect. I don't want to make fun of this person or the people that believe this wholeheartedly how do we write that in a way that is true to the character but also a also will make a dialogue happen because for me the most interesting thing is with these three generations uh, that are that exist in my house you know the old school traditional mother that's very religious which is my mother and and the Rita character um, Justina's character, which is largely based on me and what I think and feel. Mm-hmm. And then this Elena character, which is, you know, modeled more after Mike Royce's kids because they are teenagers. But I also have I have a nine year old daughter who's incredibly opinionated and American and uh, feminist, even in her nine years. <laughs> so how we have a great uh, platform with which to have these conversations in, in hopefully a loving way. Mm-hmm. All I know is that a good Catholic does not escape church. Right, Papito? I like church. I see my friends. I eat some donuts. <laughs> now this one gets it. And so that's what we try to do in the room as well, is, is be respectful of one another even though we disagree. And that leads to really interesting and emotional conversation. I mean, you don't have to spill all of the, the tea, but like what were the conversations? Like were there some within the writers' rooms who you felt you had to sort of pull like come be a little bit more open-minded you might be bringing some judgment like was there that sort of conversation happening it's not so much it's not so much that it's more like let's like hear what i'm saying and i'm going to try to hear what you're saying even Mm -hmm. though we disagree it's a it's a really beautiful room of people you know our our the diversity in our room is one i've never seen in a writer's room and also the youth you know we have 24 year olds is our youngest writers are 24 our oldest writers are in their 50s Mm. Uh, and then we are, you know, gay, straight, uh, white, various forms of Latino. Uh, we've all done our 23 and Me now, so we're really all over the map, uh, which is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
and uh, and so it's it's we get to ha- and and it's a safe space, you know. There we've had veterans come in, and we've had people come in and really share very deep and personal stories, which gives us license then to be personal and in our own lives and share that to hopefully make its way onto the show in a way that feels grounded for these characters. So mm-hmm. all all of that, you know, makes its way in. And and whenever there is something we're kind of fighting about, we get excited because we're like, oh, my gosh, this is this is good. Right. <laughs> Let's get to the bottom of it. You know, because I, I definitely feel like uh, television, one of the gifts of it, not to be too like, you know, we're so over important because I know we're just a TV show. But I do I do feel like we don't see we don't really like watching fighting anymore. Like like good debate is not something that is often seen. I think people populate their social media with what they think and feel Mm -hmm. and things that just already echo what they think and feel. So it has led to a very divided country of of people that don't really want to interact with one another. Mm. And television is a place where we sort of get to see people debate. And, And what I really think is important is something we do on the show, which is we don't change each other's minds at the end of it. Everybody, you know, that at the end of that church episode, Lydia is still going to church every week right. and still believes that. And, and Penelope still believes what she believes, but they've sort of bridged a gap between understanding one another and trying to respect one another. And so to have that type of dialogue on TV and maybe have that be a starting point in people's homes for them to have that type of dialogue is feels important in some way. Yeah, I, that's one thing that I think you, your show and the Carmichael show have in common. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, I love the Carmichael yeah. show. Yes, we love Gerard. We, we've gone over there, actually. And, oh, and yeah. Danielle Sanchez Witzel is uh, is the showrunner over there. She's a badass Latina. Right. Running right. Carmichael. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it's funny. I actually I interviewed her a couple years ago for a piece I wrote about, at Slate. Um, and she wasn't quite I think she was just getting on the Carmichael show. Um, but yeah, I, I love the show. And I think that that's one thing that you both do really well is that, like you you said, at the end of the, all of the spirited debate and the debate is is very like I think it's just so smartly conceived um, because you get all of these different points of view, but it's done in a funny way. And then, you know, at the end, everyone still kind of has their same opinion. But like it, it's not so it's not as simple as we agree to disagree. But I think it's it's a way of saying we are going to have these discussions and and arguments but we can still sort of get along um yeah i am curious though like so i have this theory that like you can't really reason with trump supporters uh and (laughs) you know when this when the first season came out it like i i I think i read somewhere it was like a little too late for you to respond to yeah the whole election was but you've been picked up for season two like do you plan like how do you plan to if you plan at all but i I assume you're going to address trump and or like the climate we're currently living in we are addressing the climate we are not talking about 45 i don't want to give him uh, more press but and also the thing that's interesting. So Norman, when he was on CBS years ago, he was able to see something on the news and respond to it immediately. And it would be on air the next week. Right. We do not have that luxury. That is one of the things that we really can't do. We can't be as uh, topical and relevant uh, as he was at that time. What we can do, though, is talk about a climate, a climate and a feeling in the air and how certain events have shifted uh, the narrative for this Latino family. Mm. So because we will probably not air until f- maybe January or February of 2018, uh, we we talk about that. We talk more about what has happened since 
uh, and how this how that climate has affected this family mm-hmm. because that's very real and and unfortunately not really going away. So that that's what we that's our way of of discussing it. Uh, also, I feel like Blackish, which is another show I love and yeah. I love Kenya and. They they did a, an incredible episode called Lemonade about about the election itself, which we, I was jealous of. I was like, ah, I wish we could have done that. Yeah. You think I'm not sad that Hillary didn't win? That I'm not terrified about what Trump's about to do? I'm used to things not going my way. I'm sorry that you're not, and it's blowing your mind. So excuse me if I get a little offended because I didn't see all of this outrage when everything was happening to all of my people since we were stuffed on boats in chains. I love this country as much, if not more, than you do, and don't you ever forget that. So it's it's great just to be in conversation with these other great shows and and uh, Kenya and I always talk about that when we see each other. How mm-hmm. we're ex- it's exciting to to watch the news and say, "Wow, how can how can we talk about this?" Yeah, for sure. Another issue you you discussed pretty heavily in one episode, or not discussed because it wasn't really a debate. It was more this was a more like performative uh, moment. But there's an entire episode where Penelope is on the phone with the VA trying to get her medication or, or she's trying to make an appointment with a, a doctor yes. because she's in pain. Like she's still suffering, not just emotionally, but also physically from her time spent uh, being uh, in the military. And I thought it was such a like really fascinating way to portray how broken the system is. And mm-hmm. I'm curious as to whether the VA ever responded or if you've ever heard anything <laughs> from the VA and or like what has the veterans response been? The veterans response has been so beautiful. Uh, you know, Norman was a veteran and it was his idea. This this came directly from him. He wanted the ex-husband, uh, Victor. He wanted Victor to be a veteran. And so Mike and I were talking about that, how to incorporate that in because we loved that. We loved being able to show a, a you know, a veteran on television. And then I had just gone to the vet fronts, which got your six uh, puts up every year. And they were talking about how disenfranchised veterans on television were. And it's interesting because I felt I felt a kinship to them because it's similar to the Latino experience. You know, we're either <laughs> uh, we're either like trying to have sex with, you know, it's it's we're can I swear on this show? Oh, for sure. Go for it. <laughs> OK, so well, Isaac Gonzalez, who's a really funny writer, he said Latinos on TV are either uh, trying to fuck you or trying to fuck you. <laughs> you know, like they're either trying to like screw you over or right, trying to screw right. you. Yeah. <laughs> so uh so it's so it was like the veterans feel that they are either a hero or broken or broken PTSD. And there's mm-hmm. nowhere in between. I was like, oh, my gosh, I feel such a kinship with this community. So when Norman brought up the, the veteran thing, I said, gosh, maybe we also make Penelope a veteran because veterans now the, the people, you know, you're in the best shape of your life. You're in your 20s. You're super sexy. You're going off to war and women are allowed to go to war now. So mm-hmm. so many people meet in the military when they're deployed. And there are so many people of color in the military, too. Yes, like we, so many, because it's yeah. such it's an incredible opportunity to go to school as well because of the GI Bill. So we talked about that. Mike and I got really excited. And then we had female veterans come in, many of whom were married to or had dated people that they met in the military. And we thought, gosh, this is a great opportunity to get the veteran angle from different points of view, because we also have a veteran group mm. where we go to where the wonderful Mackenzie Phillips uh came and guest starred she was on the original series so 
that's how the that's how the veteran angle got in. That was all Norman Lear. Mm-hmm. And that was his, you know, he planted a seed and we we let that sprout. And as we had people come in, we have a wonderful group, Musa. Uh, Greg Bishop is one of our consultants, military consultants for the show. And one of his guys came in and was talking to us about the VA. And Norman specifically said, I really want to take down the VA because I hear all of these stories from these veterans that come to him. So the story in that episode is from Brian, one of the vets that came to speak to us. That is almost exactly what happened to him. Uh, he It was almost worse, though, because... It, but the bus, like, I have to take my, I'm sorry, like, he finally got through. And it was like, I'm really sorry, I have to go, you're gonna have to call back on Monday, I have to get my bus. Ugh. Like, that is real. That really happened to him. Uh, and yeah. as we, as he was telling us this story, he goes, you want me to call right now just to show you how crazy it is? And we're like, yes. So on speaker, he called in the writer's room mm. just to try to make an appointment. It was crazy. It, you couldn't, we recorded it and we're like, if we put this out there, no one would believe it. <laughs> so... It's it's interesting because it is, uh, you know, these people go and fight for us and then they come back and, and they need to be taken care of and they're, they're often not. And it was something I knew nothing about as a civilian. Mm-hmm. So to be able to do an episode and, and Dan Hernandez and Benji Samet who wrote that episode, it was Dan's idea to let's do it the whole episode that she's on hold. Mm-hmm. So we're like, yes, that sounds perfect. And we got very excited. And then and then that, you know. What what you saw? We stayed in the proscenium. That's the most play like. We didn't leave that set. Right. We're on her the whole time, sitting there and people coming in and out. So it was also our most theatrical episode. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it was it was great to go there. We have not heard from the VA, <laughs> but we have heard from a lot of veterans who uh, who are very grateful that we we tried to shine a light on something that they've been struggling with. Well, that's good. <laughs> I I'd also love to talk a little bit. We t- you touched on it a little bit earlier, but like. There is something about Elena's coming out that I think is, and others have pointed this out before, but that I think is very um, different from what we're used to seeing, uh, especially in coming out stories with involving young people of color. Like, it's not an overly depressing storyline. Like, she obviously struggles with it, but it's more about her, like, the way in which it unfolds is more about her sort of discovering it for herself and, like, wondering, do I like boys? Do I like girls? Maybe I like both. Um, And then we also see Penelope, which felt really sort of of this time. We've moved past the, like, well, no, we haven't all moved past, but a lot of people have moved past the, the sort of, no, I'm going to disown you when you come out to me. Right. Uh, but Penelope like jumps at it and she's like, yes, yes, that's great. And But we see her struggling herself internally being like, well, maybe I don't think this is okay. Or like, why do I feel so bad about this? Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how that sort of came to fruition? Because to me, that was one of the most striking aspects of that portrayal of her coming out. Oh, thanks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> look, it's always nice to hear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, we... we So Mike's daughter, uh, and she's given us permission to discuss it, so, uh, so we do a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was coming out at this time, and he was coming into work with, such, with something I had never seen, which was, how do I be the parent... How do I be that great parent to my kid who's coming out. I want her to have the best coming out story. And I I was very moved by that. And uh, when we decided to make Elena gay, 
we talked to the we have two gay writers. We have two lesbian writers in our room and we talked a lot to them and leaned a lot on them and their journey. And it was funny because Michelle Badillo, who uh, large, largely we use her story. Uh, she said she was torn because she's like, it's such a trope to have a girl come out through the lens of a man, like that you have to make out with a man to first know that you're not mm-hmm. gay. And it's just all these tropes I didn't, I'm not aware of that she was so aware of. And she goes, but that was my personal story. So I could defend that. And <laughs> so that's what we did. That's what we did because Elena was, you know, 15 years old. And uh, and then they just were so grateful. The the women in the room were so grateful that it wasn't just one episode because they said most of the time when they're growing up, if there is, it's like a very special episode. Yeah. They're gay and then you move on. And so to be able to follow her on this journey and the serialization of Netflix gives us this uh, this gift as well is that we get to play a, a slow role it a little bit like, you know, Elena first kind of comes out in that VA episode. She's kind of thinking about it and then we have another episode where she makes out with a boy and is it she likes the making out so that's kind of confusing but then she wasn't really that into it so we have a, a slow roll for her as she's coming out and then one of the writers in the room actually our uh, one of our lesbian writers Becky Mann her, she came out when she was uh 16 and uh, a few months later her father came out and she said she was like, what? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. she was really thrown by it. And she's talked about this. She talked about this at Outfest. And she said, like, it wasn't the gay thing. It was the I thought I knew you thing. Mm. Like, here's this whole other part of your personality that I didn't know. Who are you? You know? Right. And and we thought that was super interesting. And everyone in the room is, is you know, as as I said, liberal and supportive of of homosexuality, but it was like if your kid came out to you, you might take a second to go like, "Oh, I thought that it was. I thought the narrative of this person that I've known is, was going to be X, right. and it's actually going to be Y." And I just have to take a minute to adjust to it being Y, mm. and that is where the conversation led. And so we do have a whole episode where Penelope is just going, "Why am I not like totally? I'm totally cool with gay people. What's wrong with me that I'm having a? It's taken me a minute." And and we've had so many parents come up to us at these panels that we do thanking us for that specific episode because somehow that helped their kid understand why it took them a minute. Mm. And uh, look, any time anytime parents are coming up to you and kids are coming up to you saying thank you for representing me, thanks for – there's nothing like that. I mean – I'm used to telling dick jokes on TV shows um, and, and, and feeling like, well, I'm not a social worker or a lawyer or in there digging ditches or, you know, help. But I'm able to give people a laugh when they come home from their day. This certainly feels like, oh, wow, maybe I'm if I'm a, a part at all of making someone feel seen or visible, uh, I'll take it. You know, that's um, I feel so grateful to be able to do that. Speaking of feeling visible and feeling seen, um as we've we've now talked about, this is a very personal show for you. And you mentioned actually in a in a profile around the time that the show came out um, that you someone I don't know if it was a, an executive at Netflix or someone had suggested that the family be Mexican instead of Cuban. And you mentioned that you had a feeling that was that was going to happen even before it yes. happened. So <laughs> how often has that happened to you? And like. How does that make you feel? 
Well, it's interesting because so I am a Cuban that is a West Coast Cuban. Mm. So the Cubans are uh, my parents came over in 62 Operation Pedro Pan and they came in through Miami. And so there's there were 14,000 Cuban kids that were placed in Miami thinking that they were going to be there for six months to return. And of course, that didn't happen. So slowly those the parents not all of them, unfortunately, but some of the parents of those children came over. And obviously the infrastructure for this many people and families and was not set up at that time. So the church moved these Cuban kids all around the country. So there's pockets of Cubans all over the United States. My parents were placed in Portland, Oregon. So there is a Cuban community in the middle of Portland that I grew up in. And it was really interesting because it was the only other Latinos I knew were Cuban when I up until I was 14. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was all these great Cubans in and then all of my friends at school who were not at all. There were no other even close. I mean, it was like Asian kids, Jewish kids, white kids and and then my family. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was my my upbringing. And then we moved to San Diego when I was 14 and I went to high school in San Diego. And that was the first time when I moved to San Diego it was the first time that I realized I was brown. I've, I've j- talked about this before because Cubans think they're white. They identify as white. Yeah, and yeah. then you're in San Diego and all the all the Latin Latino kids are like, hey, what's up, brown girl? What's up? And I was like, what? I thought, what? What are you talking about? And then so now I've so I've spent more than half my life now with Mexicans and Colombians and Venezuelans who identify more <laughs> as brown. Mm-hmm. And while I don't I, I don't identify I identify more caramel because I'm not fortunate enough to be in this. I'm a writer who's like in a dark room. <laughs> so I'm like this very fair Latina. But my brother is a gorgeous caramel jerk because he gets out in the sun and he's <laughs> this beautiful color. Um, so I identify as Latina, right? Because I am in this community of all of these different Latinos that are different, but my friend group is mixed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when moving to Los Angeles uh, and and going out to things, everyone would always assume I was Mexican because that's what they that's you know that's more of the population in Southern California. Mm-hmm. So it's I don't get offended by it. I just would say, well, no, I'm actually this, and we're kind of a bunch of different things. And mm-hmm. uh, but my brother gets confused as Mexican a lot because of his beautiful skin. Yeah. And and so initially it would be frustrating because I started like I said as an actor, and when you go out as an actor. Uh, this is 10 years ago. So this is not that long ago. Every audition, and I'm not kidding, was Gangbanger's girlfriend or Gangbanger's sister. Every, everyone. It was like, Chewie, put, okay, orale, put the gun down, all right? Like, it was that. <laughs> oh, God. And I left going, there's not a young teacher or a somebody that talked, because this is how I talk. This is my voice. Uh, and I'm first gen, like, I, I, yo puedo hablar español, tu sabes. So I speak fluent Spanish, mm-hmm. and uh, this is what I sound like when I speak English, and I am first generation. So this, this is shocking that there's not more representation of this because this is my whole friend group is this like how is this not a thing and it is what really fueled my passion for writing I was really just trying to write different versions of what I saw and felt around me so then when you go into Hollywood and every you know then I was too white to play Hispanic I've never Jane the Virgin this year is the first time I've ever been cast as a Hispanic ever ever before that I was Rachel Maggie (laughs) Uh, I played white girls basically (laughs) Which is crazy, yeah. Uh, and because I'm a hundred, I'm literally, I'm full. I did my twenty three and me. Me and Justina's twenty three and me, almost identical. I'm like five yeah. percent, you know, African and uh, you know Iberian. Like this is what it looks like, you know. Mm-hmm. So, 
Uh, it's interesting that we are we that people just want to group us all together, mm-hmm. but they do. Yeah. So that is a long way of saying uh, I understand that from a financial point of view that the the majority of Hispanics, Latinos that watch uh, television or consume media are Mexican, and so. Somebody in a network would say, well, let's appeal to the biggest market, right? Right. The problem with that is that without specificity, because we are different, uh, I think people get upset. I think Latinos are look at television and are hard on it. Because we want we there is such a hunger. There is such a desperate hunger for actual representation that when there's one when you get one show a year, you are looking at it with pretty uh, fickle eyes. Right. And that certainly has been the case when I have watched shows because I get excited and then I watch it and I'm like, oh, really with the with this or with that. Right. Like some Mm -hmm. stereotype um, of something that I've never seen in any of my Mexican friends houses, all the colors and the garishness and the over the, you know, Um, oh, it's funny to hear somebody yell in Spanish. So you're going to have one moment where they're like, oh, yeah, tú no puedes hacer eso. Okay. You know, like (laughs) because it's hilarious. They talk funny. Uh, So I was expecting it and I was it's not like I was closed off to doing it. I just wanted to educate the executives that if we were going to write about a Mexican family, I couldn't do as many of the personal stories I wanted to do because I understand the internal politics of the Latino community and you can't have a Cuban making fun of Mexicans. It's not cool. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing that just jumps out to me is is that in in America, the default for Latino is always Mexican, which... Also, like you said, it talks about the specificity. It talks about sort of the flattening of the cultures and the fact that, like, it. I can understand the money standpoint, but I also just wonder if whoever suggested that was also just like they clearly thought like it was interchangeable. Like it, like there, there, there would be no major difference between having a Mexican or a Cuban family, even though clearly that's not true at all. Like you get into that's it exactly, on the show, you talk about exactly. you talk about the like the quote unquote right way to immigrate, which is like very different from like that conversation would be very different with a Mexican family than it would with a Cuban American family. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And also and, you know, what we get to talk about, uh, you know, this season is when you are lumped together, whether within your community, you may we know the difference right Mm -hmm. inside of the Latino community. We know the difference. But because other people don't, you know, I have seen my brother subjected to certain racism uh, because people assume he's something else. Now, it's not cool either way. You know, like it's not cool to be like, well, I'm Cuban, so you can't treat me that way because they see us as all one thing anyway. Right. So people who think that way are treating a a certain group of people in a certain way. And that's not cool for any reason. Right. So, you know, as much as we can. But I feel like the specificity, what has been interesting about the specificity of the show is the more specific I think we get, the more uh, people of other Really, so many of my friends that were are, are also immigrant children, like the the mantequilla thing is a big one. The butter container as mm-hmm. Tupperware, like there wasn't <laughs> Tupperware in my house. It was we'd always repurpose things. And that's a very immigrant thing. So I'd have like my Chinese American friend call me and be like, oh, my God, my grandma totally does that. And those were the things that were great. It's like, oh, good. We're kind of speaking also just to the immigrant experience in this country. And and, you know, this is it's I've never talked so much about being Latina as this year uh, <laughs> because it's not something I think about that much just because I am. Yeah. But it's but it's. It's great to sort of uh, 
to sort of try to bridge that gap about what people think about who we are and who we really are. And so to be able to put ourselves forth and and I'm hoping that other I, I can't wait till the show can be talked about as just, you know, a hopefully good family show. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, Blackish and, and Carmichael, I think, are there. You know, they're they're just great shows now that happen to be about the African-American experience, yeah. but are just great shows. And so. Uh, I would love to also, you know, it's us and Jane the Virgin right now, and uh, we love those guys, and and we hope for more so that not so much pressure is is, is put on us to represent everything. Just jumping off of that, you you were also, before this, you also worked as a supervising producer for Devious Maids, um, the Lifetime series, and that show received a lot of criticism um, from the Latino community, the fact that the main characters were maids. They worked in the service industry, and there was a lot of backlash um, about because, in part, because you know the Latino community is very starved for images. Um, there's not that many shows that center around Latino families and, and Latino people, and you know the criticism boiled down to essentially like why do the, the Latinas have to be maids, and why are these women quote like quote unquote hypersexualized? I mean, how how did you respond to those criticisms? And do you do you feel as though the show, when you were working on it, do you feel like you were able to sort of combat those criticisms within the work you were doing? That is an interesting question. Uh, so yeah, that that was an interesting process because I understand the criticism. I think it's fair, and I think that had there been seven other TV shows on about the Latino experience that Devious Maids, when it came out, would have been so much more supported because it's a heightened reality. What Mark does, what Mark Cherry does on his shows are heightened realities. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly Desperate Housewives is not, you know, all of these devious women who are, you know, plotting against one another. That's not every white woman in in suburbia America. And that's certainly not what all moms look like, right? They don't all look like Eva Longoria and Terry Hatcher and Felicity Huffman and Marsha Cross. (laughs) It was a heightened reality. That's what Mark does is these fun heightened realities. The unfortunate thing is because of the timing of Devious Maids, there it, there was nothing else out there like that. And so this, there was so much scrutiny put on the show for that reason, understandably. Uh, but, you know, for me, it was the first time that there had been five Latinas as the lead of a TV show. That's huge. That's progress. So to then get in there and then play within the fun, soapy context of that world, that show is not trying to... Uh, talk about deep things. It's it's about, you know, sex and fun. And, you know, it's just the unfortunate timing of it. Oh, for sure. Like when I think about a show like Empire, have that come out two or three, uh, maybe more like eight years earlier, I think that it would have, people would have been up in arms about the way in which it portrays this family. Um, but because it came out after Shonda Rhimes had already been like yes. dominating for a few years, like yes. I think that's partially why we're just like, okay, we can finally have some fun. And yeah, yes. like, the, the, uh, unfortunately, other people of color and other groups, LGBT communities are not, they haven't gotten there yet. And I mean, that's not to say that black people have gotten <laughs> anywhere near where they should be either. But it's it seems like it's a little further along. In, in yes. The no, I, I really... It's fun. It's I, I have this conversation with all my African American friends. I was like, "You guys, man, we're trying to follow your lead," and they're like, "You guys have a good, like it's who has it better." We have oh, this God. fight all the time. The Impression Olympics, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Impression Olympics, exactly. Like, no, we're trying to because we feel Latinos feel like 
oh, the, you guys have come together. Like, yeah. we need to come together more. Like, you and then my, my friends are like, no, we still are, we're still divided too. I'm like, no. So, this is a fun conversation to have <laughs> uh, when white people are not in the room. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, I did ask when I, when I spoke with Rita Moreno um, in our conversation, do you, just speaking about the oppression Olympics and who's got it bad or who's got it worse, like, where do you see the Latino, like, representation on TV right now? Like, compared to 10 years ago when you were just starting out as an actress, how do you think things have improved and do you, or do you think things have gotten worse or are they just kind of the same? I think they have improved. I think I think they've improved in that people are more hungry for our stories and and understand that there is a, a a voice that is missing in television. I think that conversation is happening, which I think is exciting. Uh, I love Jane the Virgin and what they're doing, what Jenny is doing over there. Uh, I, I do feel like I turn the TV on and I see cops and lawyers and teachers that are Latino. Mm-hmm. I see like the third and fourth lead be Latino and or Latinx, I should say. I'm trying to upgrade my. <laughs> that is a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah, Latinx. Yes, I'm, I, I should have been saying that the whole time. Latinx. I'm still even uh, figuring out how to say it. Uh, so I do think it is better. I think now it's. You know, Justina is is a great example of this incredible actress that's had a full career in Hollywood playing, you know, the fourth and fifth lead of a TV show. And so now it's about, I think, reframing to have that fourth or fifth lead be the main character. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to do with this show and what I hope to see more of. I, I felt a little... You know, when the show came out, we you never know how people are going to receive your shows. Every show I've been on, we we try to put forth good work and it's received either positively or not. So you don't know. You just go in with the best of intentions. And when we were well-reviewed and people were saying such nice things, I really was like, oh, my gosh, I hope that means that they're going to buy a lot of new Latino content for network. Mm. And then was really disheartened that not that much was initially bought. A couple of things. So that was exciting. And then when the pickups happened... Uh, for the pilots to be shot, there wasn't really that much, even less. And then, you, you know, we're hearing right now what's getting picked up for series. And, you know, it's still not great. So yeah. it's it's translating. I think that I think cable and streaming is doing a much better job in servicing. I know that Isla's High is a show on Hulu. Uh, I, I know that uh, Stranger Things had a Latino character. But, you know, we we need to shift the focus and and have more Latino leads, in in my opinion. And Mm. anything that I do will have Latino characters in it. And I look forward to, you know, hopefully being the Latino Shonda and being able to make more content that that services this community. I look forward to that, too. (laughs) (laughs) My final question I would like to pose to you is, when is the last time you saw something on TV or in film uh, that you were not directly involved with, in which you felt represented on screen? I'm obsessed with Handmaid's Tale right now. Ah, me too. I think it's. I think it is uh, provocative and interesting and uh, frightening because it doesn't seem so dystopian now. It feels uh, weirdly within reach, mm-hmm. uh, and and so. Seeing women's stories, you know, because that's really, I would say, when I wake up in the morning, it's not 
you know, another day in the life of a Latina. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's I think I probably first identify as female mm. and uh, walk around the world as as a woman. And so the the inequality with women and women's issues is something very near and dear to my heart, especially because I have a daughter and I come from a very powerful mother. Uh, so Handmaid's Tale really, I feel like, uh, talks about women and the fears and concerns that women have. And that is a place that I felt uh, very represented. So I, I love the work that they're doing over there. I also really loved Insecure. I love yeah. Issa Rae and, and what I just, just seeing girlfriends talk to each other <laughs> and uh, just female friendships. I think that's also something that you don't see a ton of on TV. And I loved seeing just fun female friendships. Uh, so, you know, I would say those those two shows, uh, Insecure and Handmaid's Tale, most recently were, were the most represented. Oh, that's I great. Felt. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm loving both of those shows. And as depressing as Handmaid's Tale is, uh, it's also like very entertaining and very well done. Yeah. Oh, it's great. It's great. I want them to delve. I hope it's not just a miniseries. I, I just would. I, I think there's many, many years of interesting stuff to unpack there. Well, I know they they I know they picked it up for a second season, so it's They did? Back. Yeah, they did. Oh! Yeah. I, you're breaking that news to me. I'm so excited. Yes. I don't know how it ends. As as of this recording, they uh, not all 10 episodes have dropped. So right, I'm, I'm right. curious to see, because I also haven't read the book, so I'm curious to see how it, it ends. But uh, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Gloria. It was a pleasure to have you on. And Oh, so nice to meet you via <laughs> microphone. Yes, yes. <laughs> And yeah, I'm looking forward to second season. I'm excited for it. Thank you. And that is all for today. Represent is produced by the lovely, amazing Verilyn Williams, and our social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. Our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we also had EGOT winner and Dynamite Lady Rita Moreno on an earlier episode, that would be episode number 25, to discuss One Day at a Time. So as a companion to this show, feel free to scroll back into your feed and revisit that delightful conversation. Oh, and don't forget to purchase your tickets for our upcoming live show in New York City on August 16th. See you then. Until next time.